Hey everyone, John here. Incredible. It's a word that I use a lot. In fact, some of my friends who listen to the podcast love to give me grief about how often I repeat that word in many episodes. But the truth is, I can't help it. I find animals incredible. I find the people who work with them incredible. And I find the amazing amount of time and effort that goes into conservation to be, well, incredible. When I use the word, I'm going with the definition that means extraordinary, magnificent, wonderful, marvelous. However, there is another definition for the word incredible. Impossible to believe. And less than one day before this episode is being released, something incredible in that sense of the word happened at the United States Capitol. And I am heartbroken, disgusted, and concerned about what the next few weeks are going to look like in the U.S. and the world. I debated postponing the release of this episode and maybe even stopping with my daily picks for a while. It seems like a challenging proposition to promote a new podcast episode when the world around you is so uncertain and scary. Especially an episode with so many puns in the intro. There are just so many puns. But in the end, I decided to move forward. I started this podcast and the Instagram account before it to try to spread joy as well as encourage people to learn more, think more about science, and in the process, learn critical thinking skills, the exact type of skills that could help prevent the spread of misinformation and lies, which can lead to dire consequences, as we have seen. So many of the problems we face today, and so many of the phobias and isms that exist in our world stem from, and are perpetuated by lies, misinformation, and a lack of critical and scientific thinking. I really want to help, but I also accept that I don't have the answers. So, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to keep on spreading joy and hopefully helping people grow their love of science and critical thinking. I believe that is the best thing I can do. So, I'm releasing this episode on time, and two next week, and putting up my daily photos, all that good stuff. I'm not ignoring what happened. I'm just going to try to combat the fear and hatred with some joy. I want to take this incredible event, used in the grossest sense of the word, and fight it with some incredible stories about incredible animals and humans, used in the absolutely best sense of the word. And I'm not going to lie, today's interview is, well, incredible. Look, if you're not ready yet, that's cool. One thing I love about podcasts is that we all get to indulge in some asynchronous listening. You can pause now and come back to it later. But if you're ready to laugh, roll your eyes at me, and then learn some amazing stuff about some cool animals and conservation projects, listen on. And know that I'm here, I care about you, and you can always reach out to me if you need. Okay, here's the show. I am the Panamanian Golden Frogs. I put on a costume and everything now. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. 
I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Greetings! Welcome back to the podcast that I freshly sanitize before every episode, keeping you safe from COVID, the Raw Safari Podcast. Did you know that studies have actually shown that listening to this podcast can reduce your likelihood of getting COVID by up to 95%? No? Well, that's because it's not true. But it's definitely something I just made up, and that's got to be worth something, right? Speaking of worth, today I'm bringing you another interview from my time visiting the Fort Worth Zoo in Texas. And despite the fact that I may have just made my worst transition yet, although I am smiling like a goober, the Fort Worth Zoo is one of the best zoos in the country, including being rated number one by the readers of USA Today. Speaking of ratings, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet and leave a five-star rating wherever you listen. Written reviews also help people find the podcast. You can check us out online at rossafari.com and uh, make sure you're following along at rossafari on Insta and Facebook. Patreon.com slash rossafari is the place to go to support the pod and get cool behind-the-scenes stuff in exchange for doing so. And rossafari.redbubble.com is the place to go for merch. So, as you know, this is a zoo podcast. It's also a conservation podcast. And I just love it when those two topics come together to play nicely in one episode, as they do today in my interview with Vicki Poole of the Fort Worth Zoo. Vicki is the assistant curator of ectotherms at the zoo and is also heavily involved in a lot of the conservation work being done behind the scenes there. The Fort Worth Zoo actually has the most diverse reptile and amphibian collection in the entire United States, and Vicky gets to assist in the curation of that collection and the management of the staff that takes care of it. Vicky also has a real passion for conservation and is the current SSP coordinator for Panamanian Golden Frogs, along with being one of the people who has helped curate Project Golden Frog from the start as that conservation effort has attempted to help stave off golden frog extinction. From taking care of over 5,000 collection animals to helping stop the extinction of many of the lesser charismatic species out there, Vicky has dedicated her life to animals in an amazing way. Basically, I want to be Vicky Poole when I grow up. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Vicky Poole of the Fort Worth Zoo. <laughs> So, tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Hi, I'm Vicki Poole. I'm the assistant curator of ectotherms at the Fort Worth Zoo, and you're visiting me at the Fort Worth Zoo today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am, and it is awesome here. All right, so um, let's start off by assuming that people know nothing about anything that you do. Tell me what a curator is. Okay, so the curator is the person who kind of oversees a collection of things. So curators work in museum settings. Um, they can work in zoological parks like we do, and we actually work with a collection of living animals. So the living animals I oversee include reptiles, amphibians, fish, and invertebrates, both aquatic and terrestrial. Okay, very cool. And ectotherm means? 
it's kind of a highfalutin word for cold-blooded. Um, we don't really use the word cold-blooded in the scientific community. That's what the general public understands. But these are animals that require um, heat or uh, they require to get their energy from their environment. So they have to bask and, and get their energetics from the, the sun, you know, warming up from the sun. Um, so it's not like they generate their own like endotherms do, which is what humans, mammals are. Okay, very, very cool. Um, so you are in this position. How did you get here? Tell me about your journey. <laughs> Where did you start with all of this? It's a long journey. Um, cool, we got time. I am originally from uh, Maryland, go Maryland. Um, and uh, I grew up going outdoors a lot as a child with our family. We did a lot of, you know, fishing, crabbing, going to the beach. And uh, I always thought that I would end up doing things. I, I swam competitively. So being in water was like a naturally uh, assumed role for me that I was going to. If there's a puddle of water, I'm falling in it. I'm jumping in it. I'm getting in it. And so I always thought that I would go to college and get a career that had me working with fish. And so I um, went through the University of Maryland, and uh, I took a general bio as my focus with a marine bio emphasis, uh, assuming I was going to end up going to graduate school and working with fish. And I had um, Dr. Eugenie Clark, the shark lady. She was one of my college professors. And I love that class. I thought I was going to go do internship with shark. And uh, in my senior seminar at college, we had um, this class from taught by individuals from the National Zoo, because this is up in Maryland. We're right by D.C. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the Dr. Deborah Kleiman, who was a renowned primatologist, she came out and she brought out people like the nutritionist. And the the director of the zoo and different biologists, and they taught me basically that there was this opportunity to work in animal conservation, working within a nine-to-five setting. So I really thought I was going to end up working more um, with uh, fish or in an aquarium setting than a zoo setting. And um, a, uh, I graduated college. I had gone... I got my scuba certification. I had gone on this trip to Hawaii. And while I was there, a sea turtle swam up to me. Oh. And that was it. And oh. I was, it was done. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to work with these majestic beasts. So, um, but I graduated college with really no skills. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't, you know, nobody's going to pay anybody to just be a sea turtle biologist without any sort of uh, hands-on skills. So I started interning actually after I graduated college at the National Aquarium, which is, at the time, a little institution on its own, and it was in the Commerce Building basement in D.C. in downtown, which was awesome. And I did that for about a year and a half. I became the volunteer of the year because my internship ended, and I just sort of stayed on there. (laughs) That's awesome. Which happens to a lot of interns, I guess. And um, while I was doing that, I was getting some experience with doing sea turtle releases and some smaller projects here and there. But one of the coolest things was that our um, curator there, he knew this guy who was teaching down at Texas A&M, teaching and working with sea turtles. So I ended up going to graduate school at Texas A&M and working with sea turtles for Dr. Andy Landry. 
And I was in College Station briefly, and I ended up down in Galveston for the most of the time. And then we were doing sea turtle work down in South Padre Island. So um, we were actually looking at uh, how green sea turtles use the Brownsville shipping channel. So, and uh, I did that for a while. And I, I, grad school actually wasn't for me, and that's fine. It's not for everybody. Sure, yeah, so totally. be it. Um, so what I did after I left grad school, I decided I was going to go back and get into zoos intentionally this time. And uh, I got my first job at the Baltimore Zoo. And I started out as a keeper, just like most everybody starts out. And um, I learned as much as I could in that role. Um, when I started, we were just building out a brand. We were kind of renovating an old building, which is typical of most smaller older zoos, especially on the East Coast, and uh, it involved a lot of things like totally rebuilding exhibits from the ground up, um, things like choosing your plants and how to decorate the displays, and so it was a whole, it was a nice learning experience kind of from the basis of what it is to display live animals for the general public. Um, in addition to that, we had an amazing collection. It wasn't a very big collection, but we had a lot of small tortoises uh, small rattlesnakes, some cool lizards. And um, so I got the opportunity to to work on captive breeding, which I was doing. Uh, I was the first in the U.S. to breed the endangered uh, tor uh, Egyptian tortoises. Right, yeah. Climb and yeah, I, yeah. Those guys are which amazing. Which was really cool. So here it was as I took, I, I, taught, I got to communicate with somebody in another country about what he had done, and then I, I was able to replicate it here. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. And then, um, so after that, I, uh, we started working on some conservation programs there at the zoo, one of them being the bog turtle, mm -hmm. little tiny, another little tiny turtle. And I really loved that project because it was one of the first chances I got to go out and meet my local state agency folks and interact with them in kind of a common purpose. Um, we were uh, doing these population surveys of bog turtles. And they're kind of cool because you have to actually stick your hands blindly into these uh, mucky, muddy areas. Or there's the other technique where you just kind of take a little uh, uh, stick and you kind of like tap around until you feel their shell. But you have to be really gentle right, about it. Right. So there's either the people who stick their arms <laughs> in or the people who stay nice and clean. I was the dirty person. I course. feel like that's true with most things in <laughs> that, life. You've that, got the people that reach right in and the people that just poke a little all bit. All the way up to your, <laughs> all the way up to your shoulders. Nice. So we, we, you know, we worked on that project. I got to work on other really cool programs. Um, but then that zoo made the decision that they were going to close their reptile house and they restructured. And um, during that time I was there, I had gone from being a keeper to a senior keeper, which is a kind of a keeper that uh, senior keepers tend to oversee other keepers or keep like the workflow moving. And then I moved up to the assistant curator. So I got to help with shipping animals um, and uh, helping acquire them across the, uh, across the department. And then uh, we had an opportunity, our curator left, and I got to be the curator about maybe about a year and a half before they decided they were going to close the reptile house. So I left there as a curator, which was kind of, you know, one of the saddest parts of your your 
job responsibility is to ship out your actual collection that you worked on helping to amass. So Right. So tell me about that for a second. Let's pause for a second. Um, I'm curious, what what do you do in that moment where a decision is made and you suddenly have a bunch of animals and a bunch of species? How do you go about figuring out um, how to rehome them? So our zoos and aquariums have a really good uh, infrastructure of curators that con- keep in contact with each other. And uh, the first thing you do is you make the giant list of all that you have to basically put out and, and send to other institutions what you have available. And you kind of contact one or two key people first and give them dibs to pick away. <laughs> and actually, my colleague, who is my supervisor here now, she got first pick. I'm just going to tell you the nice. former Sue got first pick. <laughs> nice. Um, and I get to actually work with some of my former collection animals to this day, which is really kind of Oh, cool. that's amazing. I yeah. love that so much. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then the, the rest of the animals we kind of put out on a surplus list that we all keep in touch with each other on. And they get placed slowly and over time. So it's it's heartbreaking in some respects, but it's also the nature of, you know, we're, we're in these uh, cooperative breeding programs where we do need to place animals with other animals to pair them up. So it's, it's not as, if you know an animal's going to a good place, you have a lot more confidence with what's happening to you while it's happening, even if it is heartbreaking. Of course. Yeah. The SSP is incredible, but can, can cause some pain sometimes. I totally, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, but a big fan of it, of course, of course, (laughs) you know, very important. Um, okay. So, um, when you were, so you're the curator at Maryland, and um, you are losing your collection. And so did that also mean that you were going to lose your job there, or did you have an opportunity to move on, or how, how did that work? Um, yeah, so I ended up taking a, a, the buyout. They basically eliminated my position. Okay. They offered me the opportunity to reapply for a lower position, which was kind of insulting, to yeah, be honest. I get that. Um, but so I took the, the time off and as it turned out, my mom was sick that year. So it worked, the timing of it could not have been more fortuitous, so to speak, to have a sort of a paid sabbatical, you know, while I was helping my mom take care of my mom. So small blessings. My aunt always told me that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then after that, I, uh, ended up getting a job at the National Aquarium in Baltimore, uh, and I worked temporarily in their rainforest exhibit while they were building these temporary exhibit galleries. And their very first one was going to be focused on amphibians, this frogs traveling exhibit. So I was brought in to oversee that primarily. And that's the peelings, that's the peelings traveling exhibit. Yeah, that exhibit was insane. So I grew up in the Harrisburg area oh, and okay. now live in Philadelphia. So when I was growing up, there, there's one small zoo in the Harrisburg area, but my uh-huh. local zoo was the Maryland Zoo at Baltimore. Oh, okay. And my favorite place to go in the whole world was the National Aquarium. Yeah. So I'm I'm intimately familiar <laughs> with what you're talking about right now. Um, yeah, no, that frogs exhibit, is, does that still travel? To they thing? do. They still have two versions of okay. it that travel. And um, they usually rotate through, like, the American Museum, Natural History, um, but it has gone internationally. And if you go to the Peelings website, you can actually see where it's been um, and where it's going, I guess. Cool. And, y'all, if you get a chance, check it out. It is such a cool traveling exhibit. Yeah, I remember when that opened at the the National Aquarium, and I got my butt down there right away. (laughs) That's that's so cool that you were in charge of that. That's so cool. Yeah. I ran that for about three, three years 
Um, they were supposed to keep it for five, but they made the decision after three years that, you know, enough people had come down from Harrisburg to see it, <laughs> um, that they were going to switch it over because that's the whole purpose of a changing exhibit gallery is to kind of keep drawing people's attention to the institution, right? So if you turn it over often enough, you'll get the repeat visitor back to visit you. It's common in museums. Sure. Um, so... We they switched it from frogs to the um, jellies. Yes, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I have to I say jelly jellies, which is what we called it. Most people call them jellyfish, and we were very keen to tell people they are not fish; they are jellies. But it's awkward to just say jellies; uh, otherwise, people are thinking the shoes, the jam. <laughs> you know, so just a clarification. <laughs> Yeah, no, I remember that exhibit as well, and uh, I like the frogs better. Yeah, good choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do I. So uh, did you stay for jellies, or did you move on again? I did jellies for three years. I okay. was I was told when I took it over as the manager of that, and mind you, I started in that with very little experience knowing how to take care and manage jellies. Uh, luckily, I had a lot of advisors from the fish side of the the, the, the aquarium, which was great. Um, so they helped out with a lot of the build-out of it. Um, and the, the thing about jellies is you don't just have the, the animals you see on display. There's actually a whole culturing lab off display that it takes to make and keep producing the jellies that you see on display, the few that you see. So it's a very labor intensive process. And for me, somebody who comes from the back si- background of conservation, like that's really kind of what it is my, more my passion, um, I kind of wasn't happy with the jellies proportion, you know, the the lack of conservation that really goes in displaying them. As I say, they're just beautiful. They're a lava lamp. You know, people love to stare at them for hours, but there's not a lot of um, backstory to it. Right, right. So after about three years of it, and I was told it was only going to be there three years and we were going to go to a turtles exhibit. Yay! They decided to not do turtles because everybody loved the jellies so much that they were going to keep jellies. So I ended up uh, making the choice to leave and then move down here to Texas, leave my beloved Maryland and and move down here to work in an opportunity to work with some of the most amazing conservation programs in the world. Right. And I am so excited to talk to you about the conservation work being done here. Um, Because, you know, this zoo is just voted the number one zoo in the country. And the funny thing is that has nothing to do with why I'm so amazed by this place. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a cool zoo, great exhibits. Obviously, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. But so much of what is going on that I'm so impressed by and that I think is so cool is the behind-the-scenes conservation work. And I know that you have a lot going on with that. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that first? I was going to start with exhibit animals, but I'm going to follow your passion. So tell me what you're doing for conservation right now. So – Obviously, the like you mentioned, a lot of this happens behind the scenes. The the general guest isn't even aware of the amount of time and effort that we and space we put into uh, our conservation programs. And our department alone works with many programs for actual reintroduction, where we breed them in our um, exit to or out of the wild collections, and. Um, we eventually return offspring back to the wild, um, managing the genetics of the animals that we breed, 
um, and then release. So it's it's a pretty controlled program. And these programs include Puerto Rican crested toads, Chiricahua leopard frogs, Houston toads. Um, we also do Texas horn lizards. And um, so it's it's not just you know, what the guest sees when they come to visit us at the Museum of Living Arts or anywhere else in the park. They, there's so much else going on. Okay, so I'm going to assume that most of my listeners love animals, get it, get think that frogs are cool, whatever. But I'm sure that there's a percentage that just went, ew, why do you spend all of this time saving frogs? So why do you spend all this time saving frogs? Oh, I usually get the snake question, so the frog one's easy. <laughs> um <laughs> Frogs, I, I realize frogs aren't everybody's, you know, uh, cup of tea, so to speak. Uh, they are slimy, and, you know, the general perception is that they move erratically. They hop around. You never know where they're going to land. Um, but frogs are highly um, – they're, they're a good indicator species as to the health of our aquatic environments, for one. And that aquatic environment also includes things like rainforest, too. They, they let us know what's going on around them. So as we're seeing frog species decline globally, it lets us know that something's wrong, and that something's wrong eventually may impact us as humans. So one, there is a payback to humans for caring about frogs. The other key thing is that frogs themselves are hugely diverse. So you're talking about biodiversity and how things have adapted to specific localities and specific habitats, specific environments, elevations, uh, temperatures, all these great differences that make all these frogs so unique. So there's over 9,000 species of frogs alone. So if you're talking about what all those things have to offer, you're talking about things like future medicines, right? You're talking about things like um, highly attractive pets. You know, there are people who do believe in the pet trade for those things. And um, so there are all these other things that do go back and support humans. So why care? You got to care about yourself. You got to care about frogs. Well, there you go. I love it. That's awesome. Um, and so is that why most zoos have, you know, herp houses, if you want to call it that, or ectotherm buildings? Or I know you guys have a very cool name for yours yeah, here. Yeah. Um, but would, would you argue that in general, the, the reason that those are so important is because it can hopefully make people care more about the animals that normally are just kind of weird and squishy looking off to the side? Yeah, I think people... Um kind of overlook them. In your traditional way zoos grew up as menageries, you know, it was a long time before they even had the skills to keep things like fish or uh, reptiles and amphibians in enclosures, much less be able to wow the public with them, right? We, They usually were secondary to getting any attention. Um, but to to go back to your point, why do people, why do we try to draw people in? Yeah, we really want people to have that opportunity to see that there's such a diversity. And that's why we, our, our institution has the Museum of Living Art, MOLA is the nickname. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it really, it shows quite a range of salamanders, frogs, snakes, lizards, Sicilians, you know, alligator uh, crocodiles and so we kind of give people quite the range and then we try to put them in contact where we can so if we have larger displays we'll also put fish in with them or maybe other multiple mixed species you might see a turtle with the lizard and stuff so we want people to realize these things have a place in our our ecosystems and and that does ultimately um enhance our world overall 
Very cool. All right. So let's let's go into this building for a minute. Let's, sure. Let's go into MOLA. Um, first of all, I have to say, it's amazing. It, the um, The biodiversity, the exhibits, the structure of it is really beautiful. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that you need to make tarantulas and snakes uh, aesthetically pleasing to people um, while also, of course, being educational if, if they'll read the signs, which is always <laughs> a stretch. Um, and so tell me a little bit about just how the building's set up and um, how that helps with education. So our flow through our building is actually um, based on kind of temperate regions. Uh, it gives us a lot of flexibility as to what we're able to display. Um, if I need to remove an animal for a display and put another species out, I have that capability a lot easier than if I'm tied to like kind of a biome or, or zoogeographic um, restrictions. You know, if I remove a North American snake in a, in a North American area, I have to put another North American species in, right? But if I have it in a tropical area, I have quite a, that diversity available to me for display. Um, but the building, as you walk through it, you kind of go past, first you passed our giant saltwater crocodile and um, our beautiful gharial display, which is really the reason I moved here. I love that display more than anything. Okay, so let's break that down because it is. Okay. It's an incredible display. And um, tell me a little bit about it and why it's structured like it is. Oh, it's a – oh, gosh, I wish I remembered off the top of my head. I want to say it's a 90,000-gallon pool <laughs> with four a male and three female uh, gharial, adult gharial. Um, and it's got a beautiful nesting beach on it that we've got these like radiant coils underneath and a hot basking spot that the animals come out. And even if it's snowing and it does snow in Texas, um, the occasions that it does snow, those animals will still be out basking on that. And, and they're amazing animals. And then there's assorted fish in there, including painted terrapins. Uh, there's fly river turtles. There's amazing fish like the knife fish. And sometimes we'll have our pagnaceous catfish on display. So it's quite a diverse uh, representation of the, the Chambal River, uh, the, where the, where the gharials come from. Very cool. And um, I noticed that you said uh, males and females. So, <laughs> oh, male. Uh, I'm sorry. A single male. Okay. Sorry. So a male and <laughs> females. Yeah. Um, breeding? Uh, we've gotten eggs from them, but we have yet to get uh, fertile eggs. So that's the next step. We're trying to find ways that we can kind of encourage him to step up to the plate, so to speak. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's that's fair. But that, uh, that, I mean, the fact that you're even getting um, eggs is... Yeah. is highly rare right and for yes. gharials and that's really impressive and, and shows... they're they she's nesting like the females are nesting like they're supposed to which is awesome because when i first started they were uh, like they dump eggs ran randomly in the pool okay and now they're actually using the beach so maybe it's just this acclimation time that they need so we're we're exploring different options but uh yes fingers crossed that's one of our our future goals <laughs> i love it that's amazing that's very very cool and it is um I love mi mixed species exhibits so much. Uh, I, I, you know, I um, turtles were my first love, and turtles are are why I why I animal. Um, and I think you could just drop a turtle in basically any exhibit, and um, not just for me, but I think I think you know if somebody is going to look like if a kid's going to look at a, a gharial, it, it might be scared. But then 
there's this chill fly river turtle, which looks like a little pig snouted mini sea turtle, turtle to yeah. a kid, basically, right? And and how can you not love that? You know? And I think I think that's very cool. Um I'm sure you get this question a lot, so I'm going to ask it uh, for for those listening. Sure. But um, isn't there a risk that the gharials will then go and just eat all of your turtles? Um, you'll occasionally see that they'll interact. Uh, you'll also see the turtles sitting on top of the gharials' head. So <laughs> the interaction isn't as uh, robust as we are concerned about. <laughs> well, how how do you prevent that then? Uh, you don't. With mixed species exhibits in general, um, you kind of have to monitor your basically potential predator prey risks. Things like turtles, for example, adult turtles have extremely thick shells, unlike a small juvenile turtle. So maybe you don't put in your small juvenile turtles and you put in only mature animals and then you gather eggs or whatever to keep the the little ones from being a snack for a larger animal. Um, things like frogs and snakes and stuff, you know, we have to do tests and um, to make sure that things aren't going to get eaten by each other. I mean, I've kept species of the same types together, not necessarily here, but at other institutions, and I've come in and there's been only one big giant snake left because they've eaten a cage mate. I mean, things occur and we have to keep an eye on them when you're working with a lot of smaller uh, animals together. Sure, makes sense. Totally makes sense. Very cool. Um, so tell me, tell me more about this this oh, amazing building. Yeah, sorry, we didn't even make it in the doors yet. I know, but it's so cool <laughs> outside. So that's that's okay. There's um, there's a, a we have five Aldabra tortoises in their yard, and then we get into the building, and the building is then uh, divided up into these um, temperate regions. So essentially, you go through the tropical area, and we've got a a bunch of uh, we have some stacked exhibits, so there's some of these little smaller kind of uh, view, views of different animals in different environments. And we're hoping that when the guest walks through, they don't think they see a series of the same-looking displays. We really try hard to make every display look unique so that you won't see a series of the same plant in every display. You see a little visage here, and then you go to the next one, and you might have a different perspective of the different species from somewhere else. Um, after that, we go through, we have a bug gallery. We actually have a USDA APHIS plant pest room, so we can work with plant pest species. Um, they have to be maintained within that room exclusively, um, and it is inspected by the USDA. Um, so we're able to display, you know, tarantulas, like you said, cockroaches. People love the cockroaches. It's surprising. Um, different kinds of walking sticks and diving beetles. So really cool stuff that people don't even really think about as animals even, much less have an appreciation for them. Then we kind of have two parallel exhibits of tropical forests. And the first spot, one side is South America. So it's got your caiman lizards, it's got paku, it's got um, arowanas and uh, silversides and uh piranha and stuff like that. And then on the other side, it's our, the African version, kind of of the same environment. So we've got dwarf croc and we've got cichlid fish so that people can kind of get the idea that, oh, these look similar and they're in two different parts of the world. So that maybe people can kind of put a little, uh, a bit of understanding as to these biomes exist in multiple places. Um, and then you, we get to the center of the building 
Um, the center of the building is su super amazing. There's a window into our nursery area so people can see our different incubators on display, maybe some of the offspring and some artifacts. Um, and then we also have some ed educational interactives and a view into an outdoor section of the zoo. But um, typically when it's not COVID season, we have an opportunity where guests can visit and interact directly with a keeper. For, uh, we do that several hours a day, and they get to talk to um, a keeper directly and, and touch a snake or touch a lizard, and hopefully we can break down those barriers. Unfortunately, like I said, due to the coronavirus, when we've kind of had to stop that for, for everybody's safety, but hopefully that will resume when, when we have the opportunity. Um, we have a little section there also that is our montane gallery. So these are your high elevation or your um, uh, temperate or more temperate regions of the globe where you have species that actually live at colder uh, temperatures. And people don't even think about the fact that there's a lot of animals, uh, reptiles and amphibians, that actually thrive in colder temperatures. A lot of amphibians do things like um, wood frogs. They love cold temperatures, right? They get to have a broader region. Um, there's certain, there's um, the Boland's python. They live in uh, Papua New Guinea, and they live at the tops of mountains where it's super cold, but they have this black iridescent skin that helps them refract and reflect the sunlight and keep themselves warm. They're jet black. They're beautiful snakes, so we display those guys. Um, and then we go through our Asian area. So the Fort Worth Zoo is pretty well known for... Um, Turtle Survival Alliance and some of our involvement in a lot of other conservation programs globally. Um, so we couldn't not have a bunch of turtles on display <laughs> from Asia. So we have our big Asian exhibit, and we've got a couple different species in there along with our sailfin lizards. Um, and then we have our uh, quince monitor, which is a type of yellow monitor on display with some other Asian turtle species. And then the very end of the zoo, uh, of MOLA, as you're leaving the building, you go through the arid region, um, and it's where everything is hot and dry and, and warm. So in there we have things like our Komodo dragons, we have a desert exhibit, our island iguanas, which is another big program for the Fort Worth Zoo. So we've got a little bit of everything, something for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I heard a rumor that um, uh, I may have been talking to your PR team before we did this, that um, only about a third of the building is set aside for exhibits because the rest is used for all the conservation stuff. Correct. That's we, incredible. Yeah. That, no, 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 that's incredible. Let me give you guys some praise here for a second. True. That is truly beautiful. I mean, in... in in a world where, you know, when you have a zoo, you have this space and every you have to plan every inch of it to take that much space and set it aside for conservation projects in one build is is honestly incredible. Um, and, and, it's, and it and is two thirds of the building being filled with other conservation programs or other off display species. It's still never enough. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> we yeah. still have more species to save <laughs> elsewhere. So we have other buildings elsewhere on grounds as well. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that so much. So. so we need to talk more specifically about some of your, your conservation programs here. Mm -hmm. um, pick one. I don't care which. Start with any one of them. <laughs> and let's get into the nitty-gritty here a little bit. I want to I hear what you're doing to, to save the world here. Okay. Um, well, I, Texas horn lizards, the one I stumbled over earlier. There Can't you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're here in Fort Worth, so the home of 
Texas Christian University, go frogs, even though it's go lizards. Um, uh, we're, we're, we get a lot of, uh, we have good partnership with our, with research colleagues down there. We've got great partners in the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife. So we've been involved with testing the ability to breed uh, horned lizards in captivity and then release offspring and have them persist once they're released. Um, horned lizards are, you know, they're ant specialists. It's not the all that they eat, but they do uh, rely on harvester ants for their primary diet when they're older. Um, but they need a lot of things when they're little. The problem is, is that the red, the the invasive fire ants, the the uh, fire ants tend to displace harvester ants, or and they can kill little tiny horn lizards. So there's a lot of work that in addition to what we're doing that still needs to be done. But one of the things we've been doing with some of our partners is we've tested the methodology of being able to release the animals and track them as hatchlings. And um, our partners with Parks and Wildlife have been doing some tracking this past year. We've done genetic work with them. So we've been um, involved with different conservation programs and breedings at other zoos. We help manage the the captive breeding portions of those things for other other zoos and their reintroduction programs. Uh, there's a separate program in New Mexico. Um, and then there's the northern and southern clades here within the Texas area. Very cool. And, um, you know, I'm going to ask again, why why save this species? Well, beyond it being a, a truly iconic species for the state of Texas, it is their Texas state reptile, um, We it, it is really important, I think, for the general you know, saving of biodiversity. We don't know some of these clues that animals have um, for us. And there isn't, it is like one of the most beloved species. So this one isn't a hard sell to people. <laughs> we get more phone calls, people wanting to offer us spots to reintroduce animals than we have animals available to reintroduce. Wow. And um, it's beloved. It's, it's, it's iconic. It's like I said, it's, it is the state of Texas in a, little lizard package. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Very cool. Are you involved with the Panamanian golden frogs at all? I am the Panamanian golden frogs. What? I put on a costume and everything. No. Um, <laughs> I've been involved with uh, Project Golden Frog since its inception. Um, I wasn't one of the initial founders of the project. I just happened to be still working at the Baltimore Zoo when colleagues were founding it. And I got involved writing grants from the get-go. And as it turns out, I end up being the last man standing. So I'm the one still hitting, standing here holding the Golden Frog torch. Um, we have been working on this project since the late 90s. I have... Um, uh, Great colleagues that I work with down in Panama. Uh, when I on my very first trip, I actually brought golden frogs before the amphibian chytrid fungus went through and basically caused their extinction in the wild. We were collecting frogs in advance of that wave. Oh, wow. I actually rode out of Panama on a plane with frogs on my lap, <laughs> and. Um, there was only four shipments that we were able to bring out that started our founder colony here in the United States. And we actually have about 50 zoos in the U.S. and Canada that uh, currently have and are breeding golden frogs. Um, Maryland Zoo is still the pr primary partner for this within the U.S., um, but I run the SSP. And uh, it's a great project. Uh, we're actually hopefully in the near future 
or my partners down in Panama are breeding them to the point where we're going to probably have to start putting some back out in the wild and we're hoping that they'll persist. So we have to prepare to do some studies once we do that to see that they make it okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you threw me a little bit. How does an SSP work for a small frog species? <laughs> so, well, we do actually work with individual specimens. SSPs, um, you can do it with group numbers and, and manage them in groups, but it's very difficult because um, the record-keeping programs that we have to use are basically designed to go by the individual ID number. And so what we do is when we have like a collection of frogs, you know, so they may get a group number initially. Eventually we'll assign individual numbers to those frogs instead, and then we make recommendations. And when I go to the trouble of shipping animals between institutions for recommendations, we usually give them multiple recommendations of siblings. So I may send three males from one bloodline to pair with three females from another bloodline. That way I know people can't mix them up, right, you know, right. and that the bloodlines tend to stay unique until they've been bred together. So okay, that makes sense. you just have to keep this bloodline in this cage and this bloodline in this cage. And, you know, you just, it's, it's a lot to manage. And it's not like there's, I don't know how many elephants, I'm just going to guess, maybe like six, 600 elephants in the stud book. There's Tens of thousands of frogs in our stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to picture how that even works. That's amazing. And it's, I mean, maybe this is just um, speciesist of me. But, you know, I can look at a, at a red panda and tell you which one is which just mm -hmm. from looking at it. I cannot look at a frog and tell you which one is, you know, 103.4 and which one is 103.6. Are you able to do that? Or do you have to constantly keep them separated so that... We have to manage them in... in enclosures okay. that keep them managed. Um, we've tried with the photo documenting them, but they do change so much mm -hmm. from as they grow. And when they get to be adults, they may lose patterns altogether. So you can't really use photo <laughs> ID programs. Um, we've talked about pit tagging them, but the pit tags and amphibians don't always stay in one place once they're implanted. So um, marking them internally is not an option with a scanner we've talked about color codes you know basically marking them so you know it, it it just seems like the easiest thing to do and the least invasive thing to do is to just keep them in different you know enclosures right okay <laughs> that makes sense that makes sense cool um and uh so were panamanian golden frogs because i i i'm not going to lie it's been a minute i have actually read the signage at um at the, the Maryland Zoo. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been a minute. Were they actually extinct in the wild? Or were so, they close to it? Or what was the deal with that? So, well, we were bringing them out knowing that this chytrid wave was coming through. And they um, have not been seen in the wild since 2009. Adelopa the true Panamanian golden frog. Uh, they would need to go through a IUCN evaluation, re, uh, basically a re-red listing evaluation, to be relisted or reclassified. And um, since they haven't been seen, and it's just about 10 years now, it, I think the duration is it had to have been a minimum of 10 years. It would have possibly been moved or elevated to extinct in the wild, but it hasn't officially been. I'm just going to tell you, though, none have been seen in the wild in any of the localities. People have gone and looked for them. They are seeing some persistent populations of some of our other golden frog managed populations, basically Adelopus varius. Um, 
However, those, those populations are pretty isolated, and the researchers who have been looking at kind of their persistence haven't determined a cause as to why they are still there. Um, but the best guess is that they may be a little isolated and not have been exposed to the chytrid fungus. Okay, makes sense. So um, how does that feel to be like, oh, hey, literally <laughs> saving a species? Like, well, what does that do to your brain? So, uh, well, I've got to, no. Um, it's, I, I think that I, I don't want to say that I want to pat myself on the back or any of my colleagues want to pat ourselves on the back yet because the animals aren't living their best lives out in the wild at this point. They're living in our, you know, the best homes we can provide for them in the interim. And, uh, you know, I've supported a lot of research to try to find out if there's a, a you know, a, silver bullet that's going to save them? That is there a, a vaccine? Is there, can we do something to their skin microbiota? Can we look at their peptides? Is there anything we could do that would help them persist? And none of the research has panned out. It's just this, you know, this perfect storm that has come through and wiped them out where they are standing that now I have to hope in the future that one animals that we do put back that either what came through has subsided and changed enough that it's not going to take them out again. So I, I don't know that I've, I've got a, there's any sort of God complex here that I've <laughs> saved something yet. It's not saved until it's living all by itself without my help. <laughs> I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that they would have been gone if y'all didn't swoop in there and save them. So you, you stay humble because you need to keep working <laughs> on this. But as a podcast host who is hearing this story, I'm going to just heap all the praise on, and not just you, but your whole team and all of the people that are doing this. No, this, this is incredible. That. That's that's amazing. I, I raised $550 for Red Panda Network and felt like a, at least a minor deity, if not a full <laughs> god. Um, what you're doing is just incredible. So, um, you know, thank you for, yeah. for that. That's that's amazing, and the world needs more people like you. Happy to that's serve. Thank cool. you. <laughs> um, awesome. So tell me. If you if you can, do you have like a favorite animal at the zoo or a favorite species? A favorite individual animal? Either way, I know that's a little harder uh, with the arachnotherms, but uh, I also know that I recently met um, a tarantula. I've been an arachnophobe my entire uh -oh. life, and I worked up to it, and I met and and handled a tarantula, and I loved it. By the way, it was amazing, and now I love them. Um, but I do know that in that experience, there were two tarantulas who live at that zoo. And they are very different tarantulas, and they have very different personalities. <laughs> and everyone was making sure that I was talking to Rosie and not talking to Nightmare because... Because <laughs> of the name. Yeah, yes, right? But no, because the personalities match. Yeah. And um, so, I'm, I'm, you know, if you have an individual animal, that's amazing. But if not, you know, a favorite species? Or... I, I don't like to play favorites, and I have about 5,000 animals <laughs> in my charge. So, you know, I, I have to play fair. But I really do enjoy... Um, the communication I do with our saltwater crocodile, I'll go out and I'll, I'll communicate with him. And till I see him respond back, I'll keep, you know, my communication that I do with him and he responds and I stay there until it's over. And it, it just, it makes me, it impresses me that this animal that is massive in size will come to the same call that I use for my cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, and it, it makes sense, though. Um, you know, uh, 
having that kind of connection with animals is incredible. I don't care if it's a crocodile or a, like you said, or your cat, you yeah. know, that's incredible. Very Absolutely. cool. All right. So at this point in time in the interview, we're almost done here. So <laughs> I like to open up the floor. Um, to anything that you would like to say, is there any conservation organization you'd like to give a shout out to or colleagues or a message that you like to give to the world that you could put out there? Just uh, anything. I'll let you know. I do a lot of um, people management in my role. Uh, we, I do a lot of the hiring and I look through resumes a lot and I see a lot of people who try to get into the profession. And I feel that... Um, when I and, and I do talk to a lot of young folks, whether it's through one of our camps or if it's through, um, you know, college seminars or youth training or whatever programs. And one of the first things I usually tell people when they do tell me they want to get into the profession is that they really need to do internships. They really need to get their hands um, dirty and see what it's really like before they kind of commit themselves to it fully it's it's it is a commitment it's a lifelong commitment if if this is really your calling and you've got to see what it is for yourself and i usually tell folks to take the opportunities go to the local nature center go to the smallest zoo you can find and get as much experience as you can at a facility like that because you'll have more opportunities at a smaller facilities they're going to pull you into you'll be out there raking a antelope yard one day and next thing you know you've got your hands in on a surgery because they needed an extra body you right. know it's almost like that it's not like that at every institution but the smaller the facility the more opportunities you will have and uh, I think that that's real important and um, although a lot of institutions say that high school um, a high school diploma is all you need uh, it's really hard to be competitive without a college degree and it's and it it's hard to say that and um, because I know college degrees are expensive to get, but that's where something like experience is the next thing we, you know, we really look at experience. So if you can get as much of that real hands-on exhibit or experience, I really think everybody needs to, to focus on that if that is their career goal. Amazing. That's incredible. Thank you for that. And then you know it's coming. Raw <laughs> Safari poop story time. Okay, so... My my story is I worked at Baltimore Zoo. I worked with this woman who uh, she was a little practical joker. Uh, most zoo people tend to be practical jokers, um, and she would go with the new keepers that worked under her. She would go and put um, not Tic Tacs. It's a little bit larger than Tic Tacs, but it might be like an Altoid mint. Back then, I can't remember, or like a Mentos, but it was, they were smaller, but they looked exactly like anole eggs. And she would go and she would place them in the display to see when they would find them. And she would watch them get so, you know, the young keeper come in and be like, I found these eggs. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And they go and they collect the eggs. And she's like, what are you going to do with them? And she goes, okay, what do we do? We weigh and measure them. Okay, let's weigh and measure them. We set them up in the incubator. Okay, how do you do that? We weigh out the vermiculite. We weigh out the water. We get it all set up and we put them in the incubator and we watch them. And these young keepers would watch Tic Tacs, essentially, for weeks before she revealed that they were only Tic Tacs. So it's not really a poop story, but it is a good, like, ha-ha. It's a good story, and I like it very much. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. 
So shortly after doing this interview, I met a person in the zoo field who is very interested in conservation and all kinds of cool stuff. And I just thought that Vicky would be a great mentor to that person. So completely out of the blue, I emailed Vicky and explained the situation and asked her if she'd be interested. And she responded so quickly and in such a positive fashion. It was so amazing. This is a person who gives all of her time to animals already and was just so happy to take on another task and to help grow the um, the world of conservationists a little bit if she could help. And And that's just who Vicky is. And I just I love that. Just so much. Just, just so much. So, uh, you know, thank you, Vicky, for just being who you are and, and being awesome. I really, really appreciate it. Don't forget that you can check out the Fort Worth Zoo at Fort Worth Zoo on Instagram or uh, at fortworthzoo.org on the internet. You can also check out Project Golden Frog on Facebook at facebook.com slash Project Golden Frog or online at proyectoranadorada.org. That's P-R-O-Y-E-C-T-O-R-A-N-A-D-O-R-A-D-A.org. And the link will be in the show notes as well. And um, remember the very important lesson that I've been trying to drill in all of your heads. The word credits backward is Steiderk. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.